Welcome to Booksmart, a podcast where we read and share books that have a positive influence on our daily lives. Whether it's self-help, success, or something fun, we're here to help you read your way to a better you. I'm Em. And I'm Melissa. And this week, we're reading The Big Leap, Conquer Your Hidden Fear and Take Life to the Next Level by Gay Hendricks. In The Big Leap, New York Times bestselling author Gay Hendricks reveals a simple yet comprehensive program for overcoming our one barrier to happiness and fulfillment, providing a clear path for achieving our true potential, and attaining not only financial success, but also success in love and life. Hendricks demonstrates how to go beyond our internal limits, release outdated fears, and learn a whole new set of powerful skills and habits to liberate your authentic greatness. So Melissa, why did we read this book? Okay, so I read this book for the first time a few years ago, maybe 2015. And as soon as you agreed to do this podcast, thank you, by the way, (laughs) um, I don't know, we were kind of talking about different books we could choose. And this one, it's all about taking a big leap or figuring out why different things hold us back. And I definitely had a lot of thoughts that kept me from launching a podcast the first time. And it just felt like something maybe readers could relate to, especially since we're launching in January. It's a very reflective time of year. So it felt like it might be a good choice. But I know you hadn't read the book before we did this episode. I hadn't read the book and I loved the idea of it. And when you first invited me to do a podcast, to be honest, I was a little bit scared at the prospect. And I actually did like a little bit of journaling to think about like what would um, what what is holding me back from wanting to do this. And it was fear, just like fear that I don't know how to do this, fear that I'm not perfect at it yet. And so the concept of this book in particular really resonated with me because I wanted to like take that big leap. Yeah, it's funny too, because as soon as we read it again, I reread it for the first time in a few years. I had some, I don't know, surprising thoughts. I was like, oh, this book is more personal than I thought. Yeah. Do I really want to start with an episode about a book that's a little more on the serious side? But I do think this is a reflective time for us starting a podcast and for a lot of people in the New Year's. So, Em, let's open the book and dive in. The upper limit problem is, as the author Gay Hendricks describes it, our universal human tendency to sabotage ourselves when we have exceeded the artificial upper limit we have placed on ourselves. So it's this idea that when things are going really well for us, we do something that stops our upward trajectory. We sort of self-sabotage. I remember when I read that the first time, that was such a weird concept to me that as you become successful or as good things happen to you, It seems so counterintuitive that we would try to sabotage ourselves, right? Yeah. But then I thought a little bit more and I realized I was doing it. Like, could you relate to that? Definitely. Just the fact that you invited me to do a podcast and my first thought was, oh, that seems scary. Maybe I should say no, was Mm -hmm. absolutely me bumping up against an upper limit problem. Yeah, definitely. I liked when he described it as this like inner thermostat about how much love or success we believe that we deserve or can enjoy. So when we go above that inner thermostat setting, we often do these sabotaging actions, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And it brings us back into like the familiar yeah. or what we're used to. The comfort zone. We love our comfort zone. We love zone our comfort so zones. <laughs> I know. I know when you said you were reading the book, this is the moment where like it got very real for you. Yeah. So why is it important for us to address our upper limit problems? I think that if we don't challenge ourselves to get beyond that upper limit, we don't get to live the lives that are on the other side of that where we've sort of faced that fear and overcome it and we're better and stronger and our lives are better because of it. We have to 
we have to trust that we can expand beyond what we uh, think we're capable of. I think that's the hardest part, right, is that in our minds, we have this picture of who we are and we have this maybe vision of what we want to do versus what we believe we can do. And I think it's so hard to get past this mental identity we've created for ourselves. So to figure out if you have an upper limit problem, the author poses four questions for you to answer. Am I willing to increase the amount of time every day that I feel good inside? Am I willing to increase the amount of time that my whole life goes well? So far, those two were really easy for me to answer yes to. I think it was near the end where it started getting more challenging. This next one, the third one. Am I willing to feel good and have my life go well all the time? This was the first one that I felt like a hiccup in my soul. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't easy for me to just say yes, because I think that so often we think like you take some pain with your pleasure. Like that's just the ebb and flow of life, the lows make the highs higher. So that's where I was like, I don't know if I can easily say yes to this one. Yeah, I've heard that too, where you need both. You couldn't just be happy all the time because then you wouldn't feel as appreciative. Exactly. Something the author said that resonated with me that helped me see that it might be possible to say yes to that third question, am I willing to feel good and have my life go well all the time, was if we think it's even remotely possible to feel good all the time, we owe it to ourselves to find out. And I really liked that. And that sort of took me into that fourth question, which is, am I willing to take the big leap to my ultimate level of success in love, money, and creative contribution? So that's the title of the book, right? It's this big question about if we're willing to take the leap and get past this upper limit problem that we're going to talk about and achieve this big vision of ourselves. That's the premise. Right. It's like getting out of your own way. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So before we talk about the different ways that we are self-sabotaging, why do you think it's so important for people to address this upper limit problem? I think if we don't get beyond what our upper limit is, we don't get to see what's on the other side of that. We don't get to face those fears and realize how strong and capable we are and get to lead the great lives that are on the other side of that. Mm -hmm. I think that's really motivating for me, actually, because I have a fear of not living up to my own potential. And so when faced with the choice of do I let fear hold me back from doing big things or do I live with this possibility that I might just kind of hover at an okay place forever, you know, that one wins out. Yeah, I totally get that. I think that's sort of the beauty of self-help as a genre is for those of us who feel like we don't want to sit in mediocrity or what we'll call later in the book, our zone of confidence or our zone of excellence, like reading books like this, give us the impetus to make that jump, take the big leap. Mm -hmm. Perfect. I think that's a nice segue. So if we're jumping, we should probably figure out where we are starting from. So (laughs) we talk about this upper limit problem. And I remember when I read the book at first, I was like, but what is it? And so Hendricks lists out these four false beliefs. These are the main four fears or categories, I should say. And don't worry, he says you won't have all four of them. You might have one or two of these max. But we wanted to talk through all four of them, starting with the one that M, you and I are just like, this is us, (laughs) which is this feeling of being fundamentally flawed. I actually have a quote from the book I can read about this one. So he says, it's the fear that if you did make a full commitment to living in your zone of genius, you might fail. It's the belief that even if your genius is flawed and if you expressed it in a big way, it still wouldn't be good enough. So this belief tells you to play it safe and to stay small. That way, if you fail, at least you fail small. So funny. I had the exact same quote highlighted in my book. (laughs) (laughs) 
this really stood out to me because it is true that, you know, the smaller your efforts, it's like if you climb up a mountain and it's a small mountain, if you fall off, it's still a small fall. No big deal. No big deal. Exactly. And we'll define that term zone of genius later. But for now, for listeners, it's just like that sweet spot of you doing what you're really uniquely qualified to do. But I know I felt this a little bit before. Em, do you have any examples or stories about how you feel like this has come up for you? Yeah, I think feeling fundamentally flawed is a huge part of perfectionism, which is something that I totally struggle with as writer, as a web designer, as a friend, as a partner, when I'm cleaning my house. (laughs) I want to do something really well when something's important to me. I want to do it really well. And that idea that it might not be good enough, it does keep me striving forward and it does keep me improving, but it also sort of impedes progress too. It's me getting in my own way. It's interesting though, you mentioned that it does encourage you to continue growing. I think with all four of these, there are positives too, right? It's not just that they're all inherently bad. I do think wanting to continue to grow is a good quality. But now with social media, I think it's even tougher because even though I tell myself not to compare myself to all these highlight reels I see, I still do it, right? Like I'm still looking at Instagram thinking, wow, this person has so many followers or they have their life together. And then I start using that as almost a metric to say I'm measuring their life against mine and theirs is winning. Right. And why take the next steps if you're not going to do it as well as Mm -hmm. them? I think that's where the sabotage could come in for me is if I feel like somebody else is already doing something I want to do, but better. Oh, like who am I to start a podcast? Because you see there are just so many people already doing it. And I think that that could be an easy way for me to talk myself out of even trying. But I'm trying to not let that get to me as much. And I think over the years, I've done a good job of kind of tempering. Yeah. And for me, I say it to myself all the time, done is better than perfect. Yes. Preach, honey. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I tell myself that all the time. Yeah. Like doing anything is better than doing nothing. Mm Mm-hmm. 100%. So the next false belief is disloyalty and abandonment. And this is one that neither of us really resonated with, but a way for you, listener, to see if disloyalty and abandonment might be a sticking point for you is if you were to answer yes to either of these next questions. Did I break through the family's spoken or unspoken rules to get to where I am? Even though I am successful, did I fail to meet the expectations my parents had of me? I can see how those would be really powerful questions to reflect on if you felt like you went against your family and went against the expectations of those you love to get to where you are, that that would really hold you back. Mm -hmm. I feel exceptionally grateful that I have such a supportive family and have always had people around me who have been very encouraging. But I could only imagine if you even just pursued a different profession than your parents expected of you, or if you grew up and you just maybe didn't have parents who were very present or didn't have a support system in place. I could see this being a very real feeling in your life that would hold you back. Absolutely. Let's move into the next one. So the third false belief is being a burden to others. And I know um, I resonated with this one, and then you can talk a little bit about the fourth. But for me, I think this comes up a lot because I never want to feel like I'm putting somebody else out. I always want to be really helpful. And I've noticed there are times, even at work, where I'll hesitate from asking somebody else to do something and then just kind of keep the burden to myself. And a lot of times, it's their job to do something. Or a funny example is often when I'm out clothing shopping, I don't even want to ask sales reps for help because I feel like I'm burdening them. It took me years to figure out that this is their literal job. 
Um, <laughs> and I would not have been putting them out at all. I'm a very considerate shopper. You know, I always put my clothing back onto the hangers in the section you're supposed to. But when I was younger, I would even put the clothing back where I found it. Yeah. I just really didn't want to burden anybody. Maybe so. I have a little bit of, of this fear too then <laughs> because I have the same, the same fear when I'm shopping. <laughs> yeah. And I think that it's important to point out too, like that's a silly example, yeah. but these fears yeah. can be about all different topics. They're not all necessarily very, very deep, serious representations in your own life. But ever since reading this book, I've started to notice them in all different ways. Uh, But that was a big one for me. That's too funny. (laughs) (laughs) I need to think about that one. (laughs) Well, while you think about that one, we can talk about the fourth one, which I know you resonated with quite a bit. Yeah, the fourth one is the crime of outshining. And when I first read those words, I thought, I don't, I don't have this problem. And then as I read on, I realized it's not that I want to stay small, but it's that I don't necessarily want the attention as a huge success in comparison to some of my peers or even some of my family members. And it was just really interesting for me to notice that I felt a twinge of that. Hmm. How do you think that listeners might notice this coming up for them? It's a great question. An interesting way could be that if they have a uh, work success or something is going really well in their life. Maybe they're deflecting compliments they receive or the praise they're receiving from others, trying to, in those words that I used before, stay small. What do you think? Well, what's interesting about what you just said is only friends who I think are really secure about your friendship and secure about their own lives can be like truly happy for somebody else. And so it's interesting because you might be dealing with this crime of outshining, but at the same time, you might be dealing with a peer who is also feeling threatened by your success. And they may say things to you that would make this crime of outshining seem even worse than it is. Yeah, it's interesting to think about it that way, because I'm made me think of also like when something's going really well for me, and I'm say going over to a friend's house who just went through a breakup or just lost their job, I'm not going to go there and show up and immediately start talking about how great this project is that I'm working on currently. Um, So I think some of it is being conscientious and some of it It's the crime of outshining. We don't want to outshine the others around us. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good distinction. Obviously, we all have people in our lives who are going through good days and bad days, just like we are. And so we aren't talking about the need to just be a good friend. This is much deeper than that. This is on a day when everything is going well, you still would feel like you want to minimize your accomplishments or that it might be too much to share that you're doing something and a, a sibling or a friend or a peer is maybe in your mind going to feel a certain way about you having success. Exactly. So those were the four, feeling fundamentally flawed, this feeling of disloyalty and abandonment, being a burden to others, and the crime of outshining. And maybe one or two of those really stands out to you. These are almost like hints to figure out where you are upper limiting yourself. Exactly. These are what are holding the upper limit in place for you. Mm -hmm. There are some pretty concrete ways that you might notice that you are upper limiting yourself. So the first one is worrying. Yeah. Which we never do. Right. (laughs) Ever, ever. We never worry. Never worry constantly. (laughs) Right. We never worry constantly. I'm going to get that on a shirt. Um, So Em, do you want to talk about the worrying a little? Yeah, this really is a way that I keep my upper limit in place by worrying all the time. Like it's QC, it's quality control, right? That's what keeps my work good is making sure that I'm meeting my own standards. And then the when that, you know, gets a little too far out of control, it's just obsessive worry. And what I loved about 
the book is that the author gave a couple prompts to help you keep that worry in check. And the, one of the first questions he asks is like, if you want to know if this is something you should really be paying attention to, is this a valid worry? Ask yourself, is it a real possibility? And then secondly, is there any action you can take right now to make a positive difference? And so if I'm worrying, say, that I'm not going to hit a client deadline, I can ask myself, is it a real possibility? And in almost every case, it's no, it's not a possibility because I am obsessive about creating timelines that are fair to me and the client. I build a lot of time into my schedule to make things work. And so right away, I can like let myself take a breath. And then if I still feel like it's a real possibility that I might not hit a deadline, I can ask, is there any action I can take right now to make a positive difference? And that just might mean like rejiggering something in my calendar, like moving a call to the next week so I have a little more time. And again, like it brings the power back to me. It sort of gives me agency over the problem rather than getting lost in that worry, which again, it's just self-sabotage. It's not doing me any good. Yeah. What's interesting is that it's almost like the worry is coming up because things are kind of fine. And then maybe you're just like, ah, are things okay? Am I sure? Let me double check. And then it's just this worry based on nothing. And even before reading this book, I had a friend who gave me almost the same advice, but framed differently. And she said, is there any data to support your worry? Yeah. And I'm a data person. I love Mm -hmm. Excel. This is like right up my alley. She's like speaking Melissa to me. And I just remember thinking how powerful that was to sit down when I noticed myself worrying and say, okay, is there any data to support me wondering if coworkers are feeling a certain way about a project or my performance, or is it just all in my head that I think they think I'm not working hard enough or something. And usually it's just all in my head. It's just a fabricated story. No data at all. (laughs) Exactly. Zero data. And then another quote he mentioned in the book, he said, behind every communication problem is a sweaty 10 minute conversation you don't want to (laughs) have. However, the moment you work up the courage to have it, you collect an instant reward and relief as well as open up a flow of communication that will allow you to resolve the situation. And maybe you can relate to this too, Em, but there are so many things where I just spend days and days and days worrying about a thing, scenarioing it out in my mind, playing out how a conversation might go. And then the conversation itself usually is nowhere near the worst case scenario I had in my mind. And so I've spent all of this worrying on probably nothing. Right. When you could take a simple action, have a not even a very sweaty conversation. Right. Not even sweaty. Like go to a cool place. You know, it doesn't have to be sweaty. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, the whole takeaway from this worrying is that often, maybe this is controversial. I think worrying is kind of easy. And I think it just comes up if we have a lot going on. In fact, probably a lot of hard, challenging, good things going on. And instead of doing that hard, good, challenging work, worrying is just sitting and worrying, right? There's no action there. So So I think it's a lot easier. Okay, so that's the first one. Uh, The next one is criticism and blame. And I think even if you are not the type of person to do this, we've probably all seen or experienced it from Mm. other people as well. Again, When you have all of these good things going on and you have a lot of work, uh, often we need like a scapegoat. That's what this one reminds me of. Yeah. And for me, the flip side of that is self-criticism and Mm self-blame. And so it comes back to that issue of perfectionism again. So I'm usually criticizing myself or saying like, this wasn't good enough. That's a great point. You could either be criticizing yourself or I think some of the examples from the book talk about if you're having a hard day at work and then you come home and you criticize the way your spouse mm-hmm. loaded the dishwasher. Mm-hmm. Or there are just ways that you might take that emotion out on somebody else who's just kind of in the path of fire. They didn't do anything. The next three are deflecting, squabbling, and getting sick or hurt. 
And I think you can kind of see where this path is going. But I did want to talk about getting sick or hurt because that was a real aha to me to notice that there are physical ways, not just mental ways, that my body might be reacting to an upper limit problem. This one really hit home for me because there have been a few significant moments in my life where I have not been in the right job or in the right relationship. um, And I have gotten sick every time. And I thought that it was just related to stress, that when I get stressed, my immune system buckles and then I get sick. But I really do think it's my body saying, as the author says, slow down, stop what you're doing and pay attention because there's something out of integrity here. And in those periods of my life, when I did make the decision to change the position or quit my job and start my own business, things just cleared up physically for me. Uh, So there's something there that is worth looking at. It might sound a little bit wacky, but it's interesting to pay attention to. No, I think that was fascinating because I used to never really get sick. But when I look back on years where I have been more sick than others, it's always in a time of really high stress. And maybe some of it was not the right situation for me to be in. So this was just so interesting to me because all of the other cues are usually mental or they're different things that we are thinking But to have your body have an actual reaction to one of these upper limits was something I would have never thought about. Yeah. It's really interesting because the others, right, they feel like something that we are doing intentionally, whereas getting sick or getting hurt feels very unconscious. Mm -hmm. And so it's really worth, I think, paying attention to. The other part about getting sick that I think is interesting is there's a lot of hype these days about eating very healthy foods, the exercise, like there's a lot of health and even self-care conversations going on right now, but all the kale in the world is not going (laughs) to stop an upper limit problem. Like if it's something internal, it doesn't really matter what you're eating. That's not going to be enough. So I think pausing to figure out why you're feeling sick or why you're worrying really any of these cues is more important maybe than just wondering how can I incorporate more greens into my diet. Right. Address the problem, not the symptom. Yes. Well said. Well, I love talking about kale. So. Yeah. <laughs> and to be clear, I'm pro salads. <laughs> Me too. I'm very pro Very pro healthy eating over here. But a lot of things run deeper yeah. than what you're eating. Yeah. Well, after the break, we're going to talk about how you can avoid your comfort zone and really achieve this big leap that Gay Hendricks talks about. But first, a quick break. Audible has the world's largest selection of audiobooks and original ad-free audio shows. Whatever your passion, your interests, or favorite authors, there's a perfect listen for you. The Audible app makes it easy to listen to your books wherever you are, at home, in the car, or at the gym. Even if you switch devices, you'll never lose your place. With our special promo code, you get 30 days of membership free, plus a book to get you started. In addition to our favorite self-help and personal development books, you can also find anything from fantasy to finance. To unlock your free membership, visit audibletrial.com slash booksmart. So before our break, we talked a lot about this upper limit problem. And the upper limit is a fear. Usually it shows itself as worrying or getting sick. And the goal of this book is to help you figure out how can you move past those fears and move into this zone of genius, that set of activities you're uniquely qualified to do. Let's start from the bottom. So the first zone, which hopefully none of us are spending too much time in, is the zone of incompetence. This is just skills you're not really into, skills you aren't very good at. Overall, his takeaway is just avoid it, delegate it out, right? When you're able to. Yeah, when you're able to. 
I remember, I think this was in the book, but he gave this example of some consultant who could spend his time really helping clients, making good money doing it, but he wasted all his time setting up this printer. (laughs) (laughs) And I think about this example all the time where later on, Gay Hendricks, the author, asked him, like, how much time did you spend doing it? And he listed off, you know, 10 plus hours. And the amount of his time in dollars that he spent to do this printer was insane. He could have easily hired like the 16 year old across the street to set up this printer for like 50 bucks. Exactly. But instead he just like toiled and stressed himself out and made himself miserable, Mm -hmm. just like stewing in his zone of incompetence. Yes, exactly. And now there's obviously parts of life we can't avoid. Like we all have bills to pay. We all have different things that you just have to do to be a functioning adult. But for the most part, especially at work or in the work that you're choosing to do, we want to stay out of this zone of incompetence as much as possible. Yeah. And we want to move up the ladder toward our zone of competence. And that's where we're fine. We're not remarkable. Others are better at things than we are, but just generally like things are fairly copacetic here. So after competence, we enter the zone of excellence. And this is actually not a bad zone to be in. You're pretty qualified at your job. You've probably developed skills far above what some other people can do. You're probably getting acknowledged for the work that you're doing here. Maybe you feel a bit of satisfaction, but most likely you don't feel a ton of challenge. Maybe there's not a lot of new things going on for you. It's really safe. This is your comfort zone, and it's very reliable to be in this zone of excellence. And maybe Em, do you want to talk about the zone of genius? But then at some point we should talk about why the zone of excellence is kind of a problem. rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> it's a problematic zone. Um, but let's tell people what we're aiming for first. Right. So the fourth zone is the zone of genius. And that's where you are doing the set of activities that you're uniquely qualified to do. It's probably where you're spending time in the flow state where you're tackling problems, but you're energized by doing it. Time is passing and you're not even aware. Um, you're You're doing what you're meant to be doing. That obviously sounds amazing, this zone of genius. But let's go back to the zone of excellence. It didn't sound that bad. And I think this is probably where most of us spend a lot of our time. So what's the problem with the zone of excellence? It's that things are copacetic there, but they're not great. We know there's a next level for us that we want to overtake, but we're not doing that. I think the problem, too, is that it's so comfortable that you could just stay there forever you could coast yeah like to me it's not that you aren't good at whatever work you're doing in this zone it's that it feels routine it doesn't feel like you're growing at all I think maybe the biggest difference between the two is that the zone of genius is something that you're uniquely qualified for like that's the phrase that really stood out for me when we were reading there's a lot of zone of excellence tasks that a lot of people are pretty good at and so I think really what we want to talk about is Not just how do you find something that you're good at, but how do you find something that you are really great at, that you feel like you're in a state of flow, that you're almost unbeatable at, that you can do better than almost anyone you know. And you don't have to be the best in the world. We're not looking for you to be like the number one Olympian at this, but you should have this like mastery. That's a great way of putting it. It's those skills that you're uniquely qualified to do. We know we're in our zone of excellence, but we feel called for something else when you just ask yourself, like, what is next? Like, if you let yourself, like, silently think about, like, what really is the next thing you want to be doing? What truly does feel like the big leap? I think that's how you know that you're not in your zone of genius. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about a few prompts that he suggests. But I also, this is my takeaway, at least, 
I think different tasks for me fall into different zones. Mm -hmm. And the goal is not to spend 100% of the time in the zone of genius because I don't think that's realistic. Yeah. I think the goal is just to spend most of your time there with a good chunk of tasks and responsibilities or activities in the zone of excellence, maybe a few in the zone of competence and then as few as possible in the zone of incompetence. Right. That seems like a normal human's existence. Right. I think it would be unreasonable to expect that you could delegate out everything that doesn't make you feel genius and sparkly. Yeah. But the goal is to just get as much genius as possible. So here are the four genius questions recommended. The first question is, what do I most love to do? And you love it so much that you could do it for long stretches of time without getting tired or bored. The next question is, what work do you do that doesn't seem like work? The third question is, in my work, what produces the highest ratio of abundance and satisfaction to amount of time spent? So even if you only did 10 seconds or a few minutes, an idea or some deeper connection might spring forward that leads to a huge value for you. And lastly, what is your unique ability? So there's some special skill that you are gifted with, and this unique ability put to work can provide huge benefits to you and to any organization or project that you're a part of. We'll recap them at the end for you. I went through this and it was kind of tough for me at first to do this exercise. I think it's easy to list out things that I love to do, but uh, what was challenging for me is that a lot of them are really nerdy. Like I want to be cool, you know, like I want to love to like jet set and do all this stuff, but like I love spreadsheets. I love organizing stuff. I love the operations Maybe that's your self-criticism it totally like, kicking is. in. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely might be. But I, I've often joked that I've never known what I wanted to be when I grew up. Oh. But now that I've started to develop a career as a team a department lead and a manager, I've noticed that a lot of my skills are just softer. Like yeah. I've often wished that I was a developer and I could say, here's this beautiful thing that I developed or a designer. And I could say, look at this nice thing that I've created. But I think a lot of my skills and the things that don't feel like work for me are like teaching somebody else a new skill. And I do like teach classes. So that comes up for me a lot when I'm helping somebody that feels very geniusy to me. Um, or even it sounds so boring, but just like preparing all the work behind this podcast. Like I get yeah. true joy and flow feelings out of putting different spreadsheets together and figuring out when we're going to record and getting all the logistics and knowing all the tools and playing around with all the techie stuff. Like I do that happily for full Saturdays on end. And I can attest that you are in your zone of genius. <laughs> you are fully living your zone of genius and I'm so grateful for it. But it's true. Like I think that's part of the work we have to do to overcome our upper limit problem is to figure out the judgments we're placing on what we perceive to be our zone of genius and what it takes to get there. Totally. And I think a big takeaway for me doing the exercise is your unique ability might not be something with a very tangible outcome. Mm. Like for some people, a unique ability could absolutely be like a musical gift. It could be writing. It could be something where there is something you can point to and say like, hey, Ma, I did it. But for me, a lot of my zone of genius comes from problem solving. Mm -hmm. Like I am so in the zone when there is something that needs to be solved. And when I feel like I find a really great solution that helps people, I feel elated. And so again, I don't know if I did this right, but now it's easier for me to spot when work does or does not fall into that zone. 
Hmm. I do still spend a lot of time in my zone of excellence. Plenty of tasks that I would say I'm very good at and I still enjoy it. It's maybe not a state of flow, but I would say most of my work is in the zone of excellence or the zone of genius. I do feel like I've spent a lot of my time there. I think I'm lucky as a department manager that I have a lot of other people who are in my zones of incompetence Mm. and competence, but for them it is their zone of genius. Like that's one of the things I really love is empowering other people who are way better, way smarter than me at different things to do that work. So I think maybe I'm a little on the fortunate side that I'm spending more time in those upper zones. I love that. At the end of the episode, we'll repeat those questions again so that all of you can try that out in your own time and see if you learn anything about your own zone of genius. But before we do go, we have a couple more concepts to talk about from this book. And this one was a little out of left field, but this concept of Einstein time was something that both of us were just a little floored by, I think. Right. And so the Newtonian view of time is what most of us are familiar with, that there's only a finite amount of time. Um, You know, there's only a certain number of hours in the day, and we have to carefully portion those out so that there will be enough of the time to do all the things that we need to do. And then this paradigm assumes that there is a scarcity of time, right? Because time runs out, um, which leads to that uncomfortable feeling of time urgency inside of us. And this is something that I fully relate to. For me, the example I used earlier about like, I'm not going to hit this deadline. I have a, a real awareness of time. And so this blew my mind, this whole concept of Einstein time, which is the idea that time is relative. And maybe you've heard this before. It's Einstein's explanation of relativity. And it's that an hour with your beloved feels like a minute, whereas a minute on a hot stove feels like an hour. I do love that quote, though, because I just I never think about how time does feel different. Like I think instead I imagine the internet meme of you have as many hours in the day as Beyonce, which is true. (laughs) But what he's arguing with Einstein time is that the hours that you spend feel different to you based on how enjoyable the activity is. Mm -hmm. So it's not like this is a voodoo thing of like, secretly you can have a time turner and be Hermione and be in two places at once. Like that is not what's going on here. But instead it's just saying time is relative. So you're making time for things that you enjoy. And the more you spend time in your zone of genius and do not spend time having all of those upper limiting cues, the more expansive your life will feel. And also there's the question of agency is that we feel like time is out there. It's out of our control. Whereas we get to choose for the most part at some points of our day, how we're actually spending our time. We get to choose if we're going to watch two hours of Netflix at the end of the day or if we're going to write a novel or whatever might be in our zone of genius. So taking ownership of time is something that resonated with me. And I think that's why this kind of uh, blew my mind is just thinking about where in my life I'm not taking full ownership or uh, what I could be saying no to that I'm not, that's not serving the way I want to be spending my time in my zone of genius or on my way there. A big thing that stood out to me about this chapter is when I say, I don't have time for that. It's not really true. I have time to do whatever I want. What I'm really saying is I don't want to do that. Yeah. And in some cases, maybe at work, it can often feel like you can't say no because your boss is asking you to do something. And so sure, maybe there are some tasks that are unavoidable. But for the most part, if I'm invited to something that is like a social situation and I say I don't have time, what I really mean is I'm not going to make the time. Right. And I had never thought about it in that way before. 
And the flip side is when we say yes out of obligation to a social event, something like that, that isn't serving how we really want to be spending our time. Yeah. I've often noticed too that I make time for the things that matter. Like regardless of what's on my latest to-do app or whatever I have going on in my life, if there's something I want to be doing, somehow I always find a way. And I think that that speaks to this whole concept of Einstein time, which is that you can probably find space for the things that you want to be doing, but there might be some hard decisions to make and an awareness about how much time you're spending on things that maybe aren't as enjoyable for you. Yeah. The author talks about the enlightened no, Mm -hmm. and that's when you're choosing to say no in service of doing something instead with that time that is in your zone of genius. And that really resonated with me because as a bit of a people pleaser, I just want to say yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it really feels freeing to me to give myself permission to say no in service of my zone of genius, that it's like for a bigger purpose. I can't remember where I read this. It was a different book years ago, but it was to the effect of saying no to one thing really means you're saying yes to something else. Yep. Yeah. And I think about that a lot. I think I've only been able to come this far in my career because I've said no when I could tell I would be burned out by too much work or I've said no to certain things when I knew that it wasn't really how I want to spend my time. And it's tough because in the moment, that word no has such a negative vibe. But truthfully, if I'm saying no to, let's say, a social event, I'm really saying yes to something else. And so if that's helpful for people, just think about it as you saying yes to a different choice. Um, how do you think you're going to take this book with you? The thing we just finished talking about, the enlightened no, is something that I have been practicing since reading this book, and I'm going to keep doing that. I've already made some commitments in my calendar every morning that I'm carving out an hour before I do anything else, including looking at my email. So I'm sort of just saying an enlightened no to general expectations that are facing me in my day by taking that hour at the beginning of the day to work on a few projects, including this one, that are important to me. And when I've started to get inquiries from clients that are interesting, but maybe not a perfect fit for me, I've been more comfortable with saying no upfront to them as well so that I have more room in my schedule for the clients that I'm really, really passionate about. Mm -hmm. What I love about both of those is that in saying no to answering emails and all this other stuff, you're really just saying yes to projects that you value. And in saying no to clients who aren't a perfect fit, you're really saying, yes, I want to save my time for the ideal client who's definitely going to come along. Yeah. So you're really just saying yes to yourself. I am saying yes to myself. Okay. And how about you, Melissa? How are you going to carry this book with you into the future? I think the biggest thing is having an awareness of my upper limit problem, because I I mentioned earlier that I started noticing how I would hold back when I felt like I was a burden to others. Mm. And so now that I can see that it's a limiting belief, it helps me kind of move past it. So for example, if I was hesitating on asking a coworker to do something, in a lot of cases, I'm just feeling this sense of burden, but in fact, it's well within their job. They'd be happy to do it. They'd be better than me at it. And so it's okay for me to ask them to do work. So that's a big goal for me is just to notice, I think, where those upper limits are coming up And then the zone of genius exercise that I did, I think was helpful because I've always known that problem solving and finding great solutions is something that I feel very flowy about, but it was nice to acknowledge that as my zone of genius. And I think 
looking ahead to 2019, the new projects that we're doing, like this podcast and the work that I have, it all feels like it's definitely heading in that direction. There's a lot of good challenge, good new things to try. So I feel like I'm off to a good start. At the end of every episode, we want to share one prompt that you can try. So this week, we have a prompt for you to answer the four genius questions as a journal entry. And different weeks, it won't always be a journal. It might be a quiz or an activity that you can do. But I'll have Em read out those four questions again. Okay, so your genius questions are, what do I most love to do? And you love doing it so much that you can do it for long stretches of time without getting tired or bored. Two, what work do you do that doesn't seem like work? Again, you can do it all day long without feeling tired or bored. Three, in your work, what produces the highest ratio of abundance and satisfaction to the amount of time spent? So even if you only do 10 seconds or a few minutes of it, an idea or a deeper connection might spring forth that would lead to huge value. And number four is, what is my unique ability? And this is the special skill that you're gifted with, the unique ability that when fully realized and when put to work, provides enormous benefits to you and any organization or team or project that you're a part of. Thanks for joining us this week. To learn more about The Big Leap or to see today's journal prompt, visit booksmartpodcast.com slash two, and that's the number two. We've also included highlights from this episode if you'd like a quick recap. If you've read the book, we'd love to hear about it. Tell us which upper limit problem spoke to you. If you found your zone of genius or more about your main takeaways by emailing us at hello at booksmartpodcast.com. Lastly, we do have a quick favor to ask. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love to ask you for a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. Reviews let Apple know that great listeners like you are enjoying our show, and that helps us expand our reach and search results. Thanks again for joining us on this week's episode of Booksmart. Until next time, happy reading.